you uh, would take out your Bible and let's turn to Genesis chapter 20. And we will be reading uh, verses 1 through 18, the, the whole chapter. Genesis chapter 20. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev. He lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken. For she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister. And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours." So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom of great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother." Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver as a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we... Thank you for this reading of your word. We are reminded again of the weakness of men, 
that even as we read in our New Testament reading that Elijah was a man of nature like ours, so is Abraham. But the man of faith is a man who's a sinner who stumbles and fumbles. And so we can be encouraged in this. We thank you, God, for your, your word that you, you share with us the heroes of the faith, warts and all, for our good, and that we may give you glory, for you are an awesome God. Be with us now as the word is preached. Help us to have ears to hear. Uh, be with us, your servant. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the more incredible aspects, I think, of the Christian life is, is that God invites us to participate with Him in prayer. God invites us to pray. We are invited to come before His throne of grace with boldness, bringing our prayers, petitions, supplications, and thanksgivings before Him. And yet, this is perhaps one of the most neglected aspects of the Christian life for many of us, if not for all of us. God has invited us to pray, and yet we often fail to do that. God has called us to pray for the lost. God has called us to pray for our fellow Christians. We are to intercede on behalf of men, on behalf of kings, on behalf of all those in authority, all kinds of men. Prayer is the powerhouse of the church. And God is pleased to work through the interceding prayer of His people. God is pleased to heal. God is pleased to comfort the wounded in spirit. God is pleased to bring salvation to dark places. When we pray for for geographic areas or for people groups, God hears that prayer. When the people of God pray... God hears and God answers in accordance with His will, in His own timing. But He does work. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, along this regard, He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. He says we don't receive because we don't ask. When we pray, there's a sense in which we reflect our Savior Jesus. For Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. And He is the ultimate intercessor. We've already talked about this. That even now Jesus is interceding on your behalf at God's throne of grace. Jesus is praying for you. And invites you to pray for one another. So why do we do? Why do we neglect this? this? This thing called prayer that God has called us to. Why do we fail to pray? Well, perhaps the answer is we are simply spiritually lazy. Perhaps we're distracted. You know, there's, there's all kinds of other shiny things to look at, and we forget to pray. Or perhaps we wonder how it is 
that a vile sinner such as you and I could possibly come before a holy and righteous God, even though He's invited you. Oh, I'm not really worthy to come before God in prayer. Maybe you think that God would not want to hear from you. I'm just, I'm just too terrible. God's not going to hear from me. Beloved the congregation of Jesus Christ, know this, He does want to hear from you. He's asked you to pray. In fact, God delights to hear from His covenant people because of Christ and His righteousness. His righteousness which has been imputed to us and received by faith alone. You are able to come before God's throne of grace because of the righteousness of your Savior, Jesus. Are you not good enough? No, you're not. But are you because of Christ? You are. And you're to come boldly before His throne of grace. It is for the sake of Christ that we, the people of God, can come boldly before His throne of grace. I hope already I've undermined all of your excuses for not praying. The triune God is more than pleased to work through the prayers of His covenant people. And this this is really what we're looking at today. Here's a great sinner much like us, Abraham, who, like us, acts often in weakness and in sin, but is nevertheless used of God to pray on behalf of a pagan king, that the king might be healed and that he might be blessed. And so as we turn our attention to the passage before us, we come to a story which perhaps seems... Well, very familiar. Because there were events that happened already just like this. Or it seems like. And you might recall back in chapter 12, Abraham had instructed Sarah to tell Pharaoh in Egypt that she was his sister. And so that same procedure is again repeated. Now with Abimelech. And even as Lot had been greatly weak in his faith, we were reminded that the great patriarch, this man of faith, strong faith in God, had his moments of great weakness. Even as he had interceded on behalf of Lot, he had received the promise of a son, Abraham, falters. And as odd as this sounds, this ought to encourage us. And so the narrative of Genesis continues, and it moves in an unexpected direction. If we think back to chapter 18, we have the birth announcement of Isaac. And we may have expected the narrative to then move immediately to the birth of Isaac. But that's not what's happened. In fact, we've already seen this not what's happened. Because in chapter 19, we finish the story of Lot. And now chapter 20, we're thinking, okay, now we get to Isaac. No, we have something else before we get to Isaac. A new tension is, in, is in introduced back into the story. A new tension which is actually sort of an old tension too. Once again, Sarah and Abraham are endangered. The promise of God seems to be jeopardized. And the covenant between God and Abraham is to be tested out once again. Is God faithful to His promises? Will God fulfill what He has promised? Even as threats seem to arise 
from among men. Sarah was to have Isaac, but suddenly you have this king who might kill Abraham and take, take her away. It seems threatening. Will God fulfill what he's promised? Well, the answer ought to be obviously yes. Right? God said this is a, as, as the reader, right? We say, Abraham, what, what are you doing? After you get to chapter 21, God said it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Well, Abraham's not that sure. And by the way, you're not that sure in your own life either, are you? <laughs> Abraham's not sure that God's going to really come through for him. And so even as the human partner in the covenant arrangement acts unfaithfully, or at the very least is flawed, he's acting as if he doesn't really trust God, he doesn't really believe God, the Lord is faithful and true. And this is true for us too, right? Even where we're flawed, we're unfaithful, we are a hot mess, the Lord is faithful and true. God does not cast aside the flawed believer, but restores him in order to work out his elective purposes through him. And so, as we look now again at the narrative, after the destruction of Sodom in chapter 19 in the cities of the valley, Abraham left the shady oaks of Mamre and traveled toward the Negev, which is in the south. He, he went south. And along the way, he stopped in a few different places, Kadesh and Shur, uh, geographic areas that show up in other parts of the narrative. But he arrives in Gerar, which is in Philistia. So this is a Philistine town. Now you think about the Philistines, you're thinking, oh, this is the great enemies of Israel. But not quite yet, but they will be. But that's what, this, that's what the people group is. And just like his time in Egypt, again, Sarah is going to be abducted by a foreign king. This is where we say, why, I think I've seen this movie before. Once again, we see another example of the Lord interceding on behalf of the patriarch, rescuing Sarah. In addition, we see Abraham employ the same tactic he'd used before. We might call the the sister-wife tactic in order to preserve his his life. So there are similarities to what we've seen before, uh, where he tells Sarah, well, you know, just tell the king... We're, we're, you're my sister. There are some differences, some key differences as well, uh, which ought to lead us to the conclusion this is not simply a rehashing of the same story. This is rather a, a different event which illustrates that Abraham and the patriarchs did, did the same thing everywhere they went when they dealt with a foreign king who took an interest in their wife. Well, just tell them we're brother and sister. Additionally, Abraham's justification for his tactic is revealed consistently. You see, Sarah actually is his half-sister, the daughter of his father by another mother. We also see that Sarah willingly cooperates with this scheme because Abraham believed that his life was in her hands and that her compliance was his only hope of escape from harm. Now, the reality is, his only escape from harm really is the Lord. But he seems to think his wife is going to play a bigger role than than maybe he ought to be thinking. At any rate, Abraham seems to be acting again out of fear and not out of faith. 
And he speaks of Sarah not as, not as his wife, but as his sister. And we see his reasoning later on in the narrative, even as it was given in chapter 12. Nevertheless, God has made a covenant that his promised seed would come through Sarah and Abraham, and God will bring this to pass. Now, there is another aspect of this in God's providence that we might want to consider. Uh, and that is, in a very real, real way, the believing husband and believing wife are also brother and sister. It's an aspect of your relationship to one another. Husbands and wives are also brothers and sisters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5, Paul speaks of the right of the apostles to bring along a believing wife. Literally, the word he uses is a sister wife. So husbands, your wife is also your sister. She's in the Lord. In fact, you, you should treat her that way, as your sister. But that's somewhat of a side note. Uh, uh, we, we, we can think about that. that it's, it's not completely wrong uh, for Abraham to consider his wife in this way. It's just that he's using it in a way which isn't appropriate. And so, just as had occurred in Egypt, uh, the king, uh, Abimelech, took notice of Sarah, and so he takes her at the end of verse 12. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, took, sent and took Sarah. Now, the name Abimelech means... Literally, my father is king. And so, like the word term Pharaoh, was probably an honorary name for the king of Gerar. Just like, so you have the Pharaoh of Egypt, that's his honorary term. Abimelech is probably the honorary term for that king. And uh, that Abraham, um, Abraham needs to withhold the full truth of their relationship may indicate that Wife-stealing was a common threat in the ancient world. So, one of the reasons that Abraham is doing what he's doing is, maybe that this was just a common problem. So you see a powerful king, you think, well, here's a way to deal with this, just tell him we're brother and sister. Now, Abimelech abducts Sarah, it's just reported here, but there's not a lot of commentary. It just says, he sent, took her. That's it. But the focus is not on that as much as it's on God's confrontation with the king. Look at verse, starting at verse 23. It says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, listen to this, Behold, you are a dead man. You're a dead man, Abimelech. Because of the woman you have taken, she is another man's wife. That's a bit threatening, isn't it? Imagine the Lord coming in a vision. You're, you're as good as dead for what you've done. The Lord announces Abimelech's impending death because he has taken a married woman into his harem. Verse 4, though, reports, Now Abimelech had not approached her. Which is to say, nothing inappropriate had happened yet. In fact, the king had been unable to approach her. We see that the Lord in His providence had caused something to happen, maybe some sort of sickness or something that didn't even allow Him to approach Sarah. And so this way, again, we see God protecting Sarah. Even on the eve of her conceiving Isaac, as had been promised. But since the king had not approached her, his response to the Lord's threatening vision is this. 
Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Now, understand, it's interesting. He doesn't say, would you kill me as I'm innocent? He says, innocent people. He understands that God doesn't only have in mind the destruction of Abimelech. He has the destruction of the kingdom. Right? You're going you're gonna to kill all these people? Did he not say to me, she's my sister? I mean, he's the one who told me this. And she herself said, he's my brother. I mean, both of them told me this. What am I supposed to do? In the integrity of my heart, he says, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And so the king pleads his innocence and his ignorance. I didn't know any better. They told me they were brother and sister. Seems that he knows enough about the God of Abraham to know that the Lord is righteous in his judgments. It's like, I know something about you, Yahweh. I've heard about you, right? This is not really the way you do things, as I understand who you are. You're really going to kill an innocent people? You're really going to do this? Perhaps word had spread as well about what happened to Sodom. Probably in the ancient world, they knew. Oh yeah, we heard about what Yahweh did to Sodom. Wiped them out. Whoa! You're going to do that to us? You destroy the wicked, God. Will you also destroy innocent people? Besides this, he pleads his, his ignorance. Abraham and Sarah had misled him to believe that they were simply brother and sister. And so he had acted in, in integrity. And thus, because of the mitigating factors, he believes he's innocent. So I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't approached her. I didn't know. Of course, God looks at things differently. Because a man cannot simply take any woman he wants any time he wants. At any rate, ignorance is not a defense. Nevertheless, God is gracious, even to this pagan king. Interestingly enough, Abimelech understood God as good, even though he was not part of the covenant community. And he questions whether God would kill innocent. If God would spare a wicked city like Sodom for the sake of ten righteous, how much more should he spare an innocent nation? Abimelech had not, in fact, committed adultery. And he explains that he has not acted out of any sort of malice or in an ill intent. And so his conscience is clear. His hands are clean in this matter. And the only reason that he's in this position is that Abraham and Sarah had deceived him, which honestly is only partially true. Only partially true. Now, of course, God knows well the circumstances of the abduction. He understands what's, go- what's going on. God is not ignorant of the matter, even, even as the king himself would be. And so he says this in effect. I know all of this. I know all this already. I know that you acted honestly, but you should know that it was I who kept you from sinning. That is why you didn't lay a hand on her. Now, he says, that said, you need to give this man his wife back because he's a prophet, and if you don't do that, if you don't give her back, I will put you to death. That's basically what he's telling Abimelech. Give her back, or you are as good as a dead man. I will kill you. God is the one who restrained Abimelech. God is the one who had kept him from sinning further. Thus he did not allow the king to touch Sarah. But now, Sarah, now that he knows, okay, you were ignorant before, but now you know. Now give him his wife back. 
Sarah must be restored to her husband, but in return, something's going to happen good for you, in return, he's a prophet, and he will pray for you. He will pray that you live. Ironically enough, the king's salvation, uh, at least in this temporal sense, his salvation is dependent on the husband whom he had offended. He took his wife. Oh, but he's going to pray for you. No, now, no sickness is named, which would explain uh, the sentence of death, but the intercession of Abraham is going to result in life, which also must under, we must understand healing as well. He's going to be healed of whatever disease it is that's uh, threatening his life, but also whatever this disease is, has caused all of the women to not be able to have children because of Sarah. So if Sarah is returned, Abraham will intercede on his behalf. He will pray to God. He will pray for the whole household to be healed. He will pray for life for the king. God has brought a malady upon the household, and God will heal it through Abraham's prayer. So the offended party is to act as the mediator. It's interesting if you think about that in that, in that sense. Then Abraham is playing the part that Jesus plays. Is, not, is Jesus not the offended party when it comes to our sin? And yet, is, is it not Jesus who went to the cross and died on our behalf? Is it not Jesus who is even now interceding before the Father on your behalf? Abraham, in, in, a, in a small sense, is uh, showing the picture of what God will ultimately do himself. The offended party praying on behalf of and restoring you. Well, this dreadful dream from the Lord prompts Abimelech to immediate action. The next morning he arose early. He calls his servants together. He tells them all that has taken place in this vision. And as the officials meet uh, in this early morning emergency meeting, their reaction was fear. I mean, you can understand that. You, wait, you mean to tell me we've offended Abraham's God, Yahweh? We, we kind of heard about what he did in Sodom. Whoa, this is bad. This is really bad. Dreams in the ancient world would have been taken very seriously, much more so than they would be in our day. And there probably was a regional memory of what had happened in Sodom. And so this generated a great amount of fear for the men. The God of Abraham was becoming well known in the region and they were understanding this God was not to be trifled with. Unlike the pagan gods, Yahweh was not to be trifled with. Which makes Abraham's reaction and his self-justification even more ironic. I mean, it seems like these pagans are actually more afraid of his God than he is. And so while Abraham feared Abimelech, and the men of Gerar, they actually had much more fear of him on account of the God he serves. No doubt they'd heard the stories. But now, God was confronting them. And so Abimelech calls Abraham, verse 9, and says this, What have you done to us? <laughs> what have you done, Abraham? 
Having been acquitted of any wrongdoing by God, Abimelech turns to Abraham, and once again, Abraham must bear the reproach of a pagan king for his failure to trust in the covenant-keeping God. God does this sort of thing. God uses unbelievers to chastise us. Sometimes we have to bear the reproach of the unbeliever. Here it is, Abraham bearing the chastisement of Abimelech. What have you done? The question, of course, is rhetorical. Everyone knows the details of the ruse. He's asking, How have I sinned against you that you would jeopardize my whole nation? What have I done to you that deserve this? Abraham has done things, the sort of thing which ought not to be done. And to some degree, Abimelech is perplexed. What is it you saw that you did this thing? Is there there something you saw in this nation that caused you to do this? It's quite perplexing. Now the anger of the king is understandable, but he's also confused. Here's a man who has nearly caused the king to commit adultery, which was, by the way, a very serious offense in the ancient world, even among the pagans. And yet, Abimelech is at a disadvantage. For he knows the creator of all things is the one sheltering Abraham. That's the confusion, right? If Abraham is sheltered under the wings of God, then what could he possibly have seen in Gerar which would cause him to act in the way he did? Does he not believe that God would protect him? Does Abraham believe his own God? Why would he create a situation in which the king would stumble in sin? Abimelech here has become an instrument of rebuke on the one hand, but is genuinely perplexed on the other. And Abraham's response was to give his reasoning. Here's what he says. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Right? So I came here. You guys are just a bunch of pagans. You don't know God. You don't know anything about Him. You don't fear Him. You're just going to kill me. So I'm afraid. Now remember the, when the Lord met with Abraham concerning Sodom? Remember how God taught him to investigate a matter? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Abraham had been taught by God to investigate a matter before rendering judgment. But what has he done? He has walked into this kingdom and immediately judged them. They all, are, uh, they all don't fear God. They're just going to kill me. So I better just lie to them. Abraham is weak sometimes, just like we are. He just thought to himself that the people had no fear. They, they have no high moral code. They don't know God. So much like us, much like us, we're not, we're not standing in judgment of Abraham. We're just like Abraham. His faith and our faith waxes and wanes. And here we see an example of him failing to trust the Lord. But not only does he say that uh, this, that, well, you, you know, I figured you, you have no moral code, you're just going to kill me. He also provides the technicality. <laughs> Besides, <laughs> she actually is my sister, right? Abraham is presenting something of the moral loophole. <laughs> now, oh, let's be honest, don't we do this sort of thing all the time? Lord, I've got the loophole. This is why it's actually okay. Okay, that's what I'm doing. 
Sarah is the daughter of his father by another mother. And so though she is his wife, she is his half-sister. It's true. No, it's not the whole truth, is it? Now, this, at this point in the history of the covenant people, the law had not been yet given against this kind of kinship marriage. Deuteronomy 27.22 says, Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. That law will come later. But here, Abraham's final word of defense is to explain his consistent procedure. Since God had caused him to wander away from his father's house, sojourning in various foreign lands, he had asked Sarah to do him a favor. This is a kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. This is what he's asked of her. Now the word that is translated in our uh, in the English Standard uh, Version, the word translated kindness, is in Hebrew the word chesed, which is often translated loving kindness or having to do with covenant faithfulness. So here's what Abraham is saying to Sarah. You can show me your love and your, and your loyalty by granting me this one request. Everywhere we go, you're to say, I'm your brother. And the couple had already successfully used this ruse in Egypt, or at least somewhat successfully. And when we consider this event with the one in Egypt, it seems that he had used the tactic there for the first time. He had some, at least a moderate amount of success, and so he and Sarah continued to employ it. Well, kind of worked in Egypt, might as well try it again. And Abraham's mention of his leaving his father's house speaks of his being an alien. And he is an alien, he's a sojourner. He is outside of the safety net of his father's household. He has gone out as a foreigner. And sojourners and foreigners are easily exploited by immoral men. An example of that is in Sodom, right? Sodom sought to exploit the foreigner and the sojourners. And so Abraham understands this about the world. He's living in a very dangerous world. And Abraham's using this tactic to protect himself but also reveals his weakness in faith. You see, Abraham seems to have forgotten that although he left his father's household and the protection that that afforded him, he is under the protection of his heavenly father. His heavenly father is greater than his earthly father. And so as often has been the case with Abraham, we see his faith, which has high highs, right? Where he just, just such a strong, amazing faith, but he also has very low lows. Not too different from you and I. And so, what now was the king to do? Although he has been vindicated of any wrongdoing, Abimelech gives gifts of sheep and oxen, male and female servants to Abraham, and he returns Sarah to him. Now this is actually fairly amazing, right? His response is immediately give them a bunch of gifts. I mean, he doesn't owe them anything, right? I mean, they had lied to him and put him in this situation, and yet he gives them gifts and blesses them in honor of the God that they serve. The Lord has delivered his elect children out of a dreadful situation and then even blesses them in unexpected ways. It's pretty astounding. 
And after having given them gifts, the king then invites them to dwell in the land, anywhere they pleased. Now this is very different from what happened in Egypt, if you remember. Remember in Egypt, the Pharaoh said, you just need to go. In fact, I'm going to have some men escort you out of the land. That's not what happens here. Here, Abimelech says, look, the land is before you. Just settle wherever you'd like. He welcomes them to stay in the land. And then he says to Sarah, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver, the sign of your innocence in the eyes of all those who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. So not only has he given them animals, sheep, and, and oxen, and servants, male and female servants. He also gave a thousand pieces of silver. Now this is an enormous sum of money. And he does this, he says, to compensate for any lost honor which Sarah may have experienced in the eyes of the world. This is actually, again, this is astounding. Here's a pagan king who says, look, this is all, this is all a mistake. And I want to make sure nobody thinks anything ill of you, Sarah. So I've given your brother, you notice he doesn't say your husband. <laughs> Is your brother, I've given this. It wasn't made clear that Sarah had not been defiled. Nothing, nothing untoward had happened. Nothing wrong had occurred. And in calling, uh, mentioning your brother, of course this is a reference to Abraham. This may be a concession to Abraham's defense or perhaps a, a final sort of jab. Right? A little jab at Abraham. This may be a sarcastic rebuke. And really, if you consider this too, it's, it's actually astounding how patient Abimelech is. I mean, you, you, with Pharaoh, you kind of understand his reaction. Like, you know, you know okay, fine, you're, you're, you're a follower of Yahweh, and this is what's happened, but you, you just need to go. <laughs> go away. Abimelech is so patient with them. Now, does Abimelech actually honor God contrary to what Abraham thought? Perhaps. It's, it's possible. Um, there are some commentators who seem to think that Abimelech is a believer. I'm not totally convinced of that. It could, it could simply be that this is just an example of common grace. That sometimes the unbeliever acts in gracious ways even despite their beliefs. Just, to, just because a person is an unbeliever does not mean that they are wholly wicked and, and murderous. Not, not every unbeliever we meet is, is just as bad as they possibly could be. The doctrine of total depravity is not utter depravity. No one is as bad as they could be. And perhaps this is a lesson for Abraham here. Perhaps Abraham learned, had to learn, you know, I live in a wicked world, but not everybody's as bad as they possibly could be. And by the way, I can trust the Lord. The Lord even gives great common grace to others. And something else, too. Just as uh, God had said, Abimelech returned Sarah, and Abraham was to act as a prophet. And so, as a prophet of the Lord, he prayed on behalf of Abimelech. And Abimelech was healed along with his wife and their female slaves, such that they all bore children. And so again, here we see Abraham as the prophet. He's, he's responsible again to be a blessing to the nations. What's he doing? In, in this small way, he's blessing a nation. 
Abraham's presence was to have a great religious and political impact on the region and ultimately on the world. He was being a blessing because of God. We learn too that Abimelech's taking Sarah had the Philistines experience barrenness which is subsequently reversed by the king's benevolence toward Abraham. But the healing does not belong to Abraham. This is not Abraham, any kind of largesse on his part. Like, well, I'm such a great and nice guy, I'm going to heal him. It has nothing to do with Abraham. <laughs> in, this, in one sense, right? It's his God who does this through Abraham as a servant. Abraham's prayer on their behalf then is a blessing that as a nation, the Philistines would continue. Because... Remember, they, they were going to be destroyed if Sarah isn't returned and Abraham prays for them. Now, if you think about it, that's an amazing twist on the greater scheme of redemptive history. Because, what do we know about the Philistines? They're a thorn in the side of Israel. Constantly. You think about this. At this point, they could have been destroyed. But God in His graciousness doesn't. Of course, we could also say the Philistines are used as a thorn in the side of Israel because Israel needed a thorn in their side. God uses the Philistines to consistently rebuke Israel. But here's a nation which is a thorn in the side of Israel, and they and they owe their very existence to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The lesson ought not to be lost on all the nations of the earth who though they are in rebellion against God only exist because of God's grace. It's really, it's really great when, when all those little threads come together, isn't it? When you see well, even the Philistines by God's grace existed and were used for His glory. In James 5, we had read for our New Testament reading this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church. and Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. As we started today, we said that God has called the covenant people to be intercessors. We've been called to be a people of prayer. You and I as Christians are to bring bring the believer and the unbeliever before God's throne of grace. Seeking the salvation of the lost, seeking the good of people. In in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says that we are to pray earnestly to the Lord to send harvesters into His harvest. And Abraham, in our text, intercedes on behalf of a pagan king that the people and he might be healed. And Abraham does this as the imperfect prophet of God, which prefigures the perfect prophet and intercessor, our Savior Jesus Christ. Abraham, like us, was sinful and failing, and yet he was called to the task of prayer. As Calvin declares in regard to this account, quote, In this history, the Holy Spirit presents to us a remarkable instance both of the infirmity of man and of the grace of God. End quote. God is merciful and gracious even as we are feeble and fail. You, are, you and I are feeble, failing men. We are weak in our faith. 
We sin against God, but the Lord wants you and I to pray. For our God is a God of mercy and grace. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again so that you and I may be rescued from our sin and follow after Him. He has made you a new creature in Him. By grace you've been saved. This is the free gift of God. If you believe that God has brought you into His covenant, has made you a son by adoption, then why would you think that He doesn't want to hear from you? If you are a blood-bought child of the King, why do you think God wouldn't hear from me? Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, pray earnestly to the Lord. Come before His throne of grace with boldness, knowing that you are a child of the King, even as Abraham, even as he was weak in his faith, Sometimes he didn't trust in the Lord and yet was called to pray. Pray for this king. God has called his prophet, has instructed him to pray. You and I are called to pray as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reminder in your word that you call your people to be people of prayer. And we are encouraged, Lord, that as we read of the patriarch Abraham that uh, he's a hero of the faith, and yet the heroes of the faith are presented even with their warts. And so we're thankful, for we can be encouraged that though we stumble and fall, we have Christ our Savior. And that you as our Heavenly Father delight to hear from us. And so we pray that we would be people of prayer. Help us, O God, by your grace and mercy to be people who pray. May your spirit prompt our hearts to pray. May you put on our minds the needs of those around us, whether it be our neighbors, co-workers, whether it be our family, whether it be the people of this congregation, whatever it would be, Lord, we pray that you would put these things in our hearts and our minds, that we would lift them before your throne of grace. And that you would act in accordance with your will doing that which is pleasing in your sight. We thank you, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen.